Hey, you're listening to the Southeastern University's Ohio Regional Campus Podcast. We pray these chapel sessions encourage and empower you, inspiring your imagination and sharpening your skills and values, both for current and future leaders for Christ. Thanks for listening. Awesome. Hey, it's great to be with you this morning. And uh, like Cherish said, welcome to what is normally Ohio winter here in Columbus, which means we don't know what's going to happen next. So, uh, all right. Well, I want to speak to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to do some exegesis this morning and dial into this passage of Scripture this morning. But uh, let me start out with a few stories. Uh, this man started with this passage in his communication to his country. He said this, I have walked, walked the long road of freedom. I have tried not to falter. I've made many missteps along the way. But I have discovered the secret after climbing the great hill one finds that there are many more hills to climb. I've taken a moment to rest here to steal a view of that glorious vista that surrounds me to look back on the distance I have once climbed. But I can rest only for a moment, for with this freedom comes responsibilities. I dare not linger, for my long walk has not yet ended. These are the words of a man who spent 27 years in prison behind bars in a cell 10 by 10, for crimes that he did not commit. He was unjustly sent to prison because of the apartheid, a government in South Africa, uh, which told you that the way that you and your ancestors lived was savage and not even human. And most people didn't realize that although this man was a Christian, he was part of an armed resistance. Instead of being better after 27 years, in 1990, this man was freed, and along with the president of the country at the time, President de Klerk, who happens to be white, he and de Klerk ended racism. That was systemic in that nation. And then four years later, Nelson Mandela is elected as the president. He's a man committed to freedom for all mankind. And so Mandela learned peacemaking, from uh, his prison and studying the life of Jesus, in fact, that he still uses even to this day. Friends, that's the type of life symbolized by sacrifice, and I think sacrifice is best symbolized in the image of the cross. The cross is not and it cannot be loved, and Paul preached that in writing about the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look this morning at verses 17 through 25. I want to set the stage for you this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture You know, have you ever had one of those days that you thought was going to go really, really well, like you amped yourself up for it, and it just went so sideways, so wrong, so backwards? Paul had a day like that in uh, Acts chapter 14. He and Barnabas set out to preach in the city of Lystra, and, uh, you know, it was going well, or so it seemed. They were preaching, and people were like, wow, this is amazing. Signs and wonders are happening. So much so, they're like, Paul is... Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. They're gods. Look at all the power that's coming out of them. And Paul's like, "Uh, oh, no, 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 you're not quite getting it. And he begins to explain to them that's not who we are. And they get upset, so upset, they actually drag Paul and they stone him and they leave him for dead. And he gets back up and he goes out of the city, prays with his disciples And miraculously, if you read the scripture, he actually goes back into the city to preach again. And eventually they leave to Derby. And it seems like a terrible, just things didn't go the way you planned. 
But if you read later in the epistles, some of the fruit from that really dysfunctional episode include Timothy, who was actually saved out of that moment and uh, later becomes part of Paul's life. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, talks to us in our conversations, and shouts at us in our suffering. It's God's megaphone for a dying world. So the Greek rhetorician, al Sophoron wrote, I've never yet been to Corinth, for I know the pretty beastly life that the rich enjoy there and the wretchedness of the poor. The city could even claim the distinction of having their city turned into a verb. To Corinthianize meant to just have everything go to the dogs, to just be a trashy, trashy place. And so much so that if you were to look at Corinth and kind of the ancient world, it's situated on an isthmus, say that a hundred times, between uh, really what's Greek and Peloponnesia today. And uh, the population was mostly immigrants, sailors from around the world that have sort of ended up in that um, port city. And it's a city that in this moment uh, where Paul's writing the book of Corinthians is a city reborn from old and uh, it's been destroyed by Rome. And scholars believe that when Paul is writing to the church there, there's about 150 to 400 families in Corinth that are believers. I mean, this is a mega church uh, movement in Corinth. And part of it was they were house churches. They were God-fearers that had an appreciation for the Jewish culture, but had been saved after Paul had explained to them, uh, you know, just who Jesus was. And so these included some complex house churches, probably Priscilla and Aquila. Chloe's household was probably part uh, of the, the mission of Jesus engaging people in that dark city. And so it's a culture of multiculturalism where diversity is the popular religion of the time. It's an oversexed culture, um, so, fo- so focused on sex that the, in the pantheon god, Aphrodite's statue, if you were to go to Corinth today um, and look at some of the archaeology, that her statue is actually bigger than Poseidon or any of the other Greek gods of the pantheon. And it's estimated that the temple there during this time employed a thousand prostitutes And even the FCC would blush at kind of how they decorated the walls of this temple full of breasts and phallic symbols that were there. It's a titanic culture. And Paul understood that his mission really was twofold. One, it was in one sense to get people out of that culture's just dumpster fire of uh, an idea of what life was like. To get people really on the boats, lifeboats of the Titanic, not to rearrange the, the um, chairs on the deck, so to speak, to make things look a little nicer as the big ship is beginning to sink. And uh, so as he's doing that, he's developing with them a little bit of a survival theology. It's a survival theology that we see um, at different moments in human history. Um, you see it in you know, Christian fundamentalism that's reacting to a culture that's just broken and just crazy. And uh, his other purpose was not simply to disregard the culture as completely evil, but to act as public players in the marketplace of ideas to engage the culture, which is something that we all need to do in our life as followers of Jesus, regardless of whether we're going to go in ministry, we're going to work in production or lead people through music, or we're going to be business people or counselors. That's part of your your job. Your role is to engage culture, to understand culture. You know, you never encounter the gospel 
in isolation. You never get like the pure gospel. I know I hear this all the time from pastors. Like we just got to get to the, you know, first century church. If we're just like the first century church, you never really encounter the gospel in the absence of culture. You always encounter the gospel in the context of culture. And there are always noble and despicable parts of culture, right? So the U.S. values individual human life, say much more than the Chinese. But the Chinese culture has a lot to teach us when it comes to Christian hospitality about honor and care. And just there, there are always noble parts and despicable parts of culture that are redemptive. And Paul understood that. And so in the context of 1 Corinthians, in sort of an upside down, oversexed, confused culture, he writes the words that we're going to read now this morning in the first chapter. Here's what it says. Thanks so much, Jazz. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the philosopher or the scholar of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in verse 17, Paul gets right to it and he says, you know what, instead of baptizing culture and saying, hey, it's all good, let's look and seek transformation. So let me measure this Corinthian culture against the cross. Luther said it this way, crux probita omina, the cross measures or probes everything. And the cross probes everything. Uh, you know, George Marston is a great evangelical uh, just thinker and writer, and he was writing a commentary on American church life. And so he asked some scholars that would travel and speak to churches, and that's really been my life. I've traveled to tons and tons of churches probably over 500 churches at this point in my life. And if you were to do that over a period of 10 years, that would mean you'd have to go to a different church every Sunday for a decade. It's crazy. And one of the things that George Marsden asked some of these scholars to do is sort of document where the church was at when they would take pictures of, of the churches. And so they'd get off the road a little bit and they'd go to Nebraska or they'd go to uh, Kansas or Colorado and they'd go to these little towns and uh, maybe we're in Ohio, and at the center of the town is a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church uh, or Episcopal church, and sometimes there was an American Baptist church. Then you'd sort of go across the tracks a little bit, and you'd find an Assembly of God church, or you might find uh, a non-denominational church or a charismatic church, and because uh, there, there was a church on the other side of the tracks, and uh, all these days, Assemblies of God and Charismatic and even Nazarene churches aren't the churches on the other side of the tracks. There's an incredible economic shift that's happened in the greater Christian world. Um, and so we're no longer the people on the other side of the tracks. Um, there are different people who hold power economically and politically, and we need to desperately engage and develop a good theology of, pub of the public square as we influence these new arenas as thinkers. And so one of the leading commentators on public life, his name is Franklin Ford, 
He said when there was all this discussion on Supreme Court justices, he said, you know, you never get evangelical Supreme Court justices. You always get Catholic ones. He said, you know, uh, evangelicals have all the passion, but Catholics have all the intellectual heft. He said, you know, evangelicals are always talking about abortion or different social issues. And, uh, but when they get around to appointing that people with that type of agenda, you don't have anybody that's, uh, that's there to appoint. And so you end up with Catholic ones. And there's a reason for that because Catholicism has this rich tradition of public theology. It really goes back to Thomas Aquinas and just uh, his influence on the Catholic Church. And so that whole tradition equips them as people to get beyond passion and more into profitable thinking, careful thinking about public life. And so why we need to develop a really solid theology of the marketplace to hear Paul's words in a, in a pluralistic world. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we're faced with this crisis, right? We're faced with the crisis of relevance and identity. And the danger with both is that it can often force humanity and churches to sort of adopt themselves or businesses to a constantly changing culture. Then does the church sort of become this chameleon that instead of always, it's just always taking on the colors of its environment. But then does it go unnoticed instead of actually being seen? So if a person abandons themselves as they were, and they find themselves, by emptying themselves, they find a new life. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus says, whoever seeks his life, gains his life, will lose it. But whatever loses his life will preserve it. And Schiller says it this way, unless your life, uh, you seek to live your life, um, you will never win. Christian identity can only be understood as an act of identification with the crucified God. People will never remember you for what you got, but for what you gave away. Zechariah says it this way, the loneliest moment in life is when you've had that which will give you the ultimate and it's let you down. Sacredness and ultimacy gives you the meaning and the reason and purpose for which you and I are created. Jews demand miraculous signs. This, of course, reflects a Jewish messianic culture. Um, they wanted to see a sign from Jesus. They wanted to see a show. They wanted to see the circus. All of us would love a good show. I like a good show like anybody else. But God knows if he just puts on a spectacle, he's going to get our spectators. And he's not really interested in that. And our culture, of course, is, is so about entertaining. And uh, we are being entertained to death. The more odd and obtuse, the better. It's killing us. Greeks look for wisdom. So we all want to be more educated. Um, I think that was mentioned this morning about me. I love education. But the problem with education that's not redemptive is that it can be used as a tool for our own self-interest and not as a tool to actually advance human flourishing and the kingdom of God to advance through um, what we do. That's why we need good educators, not in multiversities, but in a university, unified under the principles of Jesus Christ to serve our world and give our lives to each other. And that's why this next verse is so important. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, if you're like me this morning, you may have grown numb to the reality of the cross as utter foolishness. And maybe you wear a necklace that's a cross or Maybe you have an affinity for the cross. But to us, it's become not a form of capital, 
punishment. Not a form of utter dismay, but instead we think of the cross as a religious symbol. Every symbol points beyond itself to something else. The symbol of the cross in the church points to a God not crucified between two candles and a nice altar, but between two thieves in the place of the skull where the outcasts belong, cast out of the city. And it does not invite change of thought, but change of mind, transformation. So perhaps if I could this morning contextualize uh, a Messiah crucified this morning, what would it look like if Jesus were condemned to die a politically motivated execution to eliminate the inconvenient reality of who he was to the day? What would that look like if it happened today? Perhaps it would look like this. Jesus' trial would be televised. He'd come into the courtroom, and outside the court, there would be a raucous crowd, right? On the one side, there would be CNN, and on the other side would be Fox News. And there would be a crowd, and they'd be holding picket signs, and some signs would say, you're condemning the innocent. And other signs on the other side would say, he's inviting a riot, was inciting a riot. The morning talk shows would talk about the fact Uh, that Jesus is nuts. And they'd bring a psychologist in and the psychologist would say, you know, we think Jesus is is off his rocker. Uh, We think he needs to be medicated because you know what, he thinks he's God. And he's sort of gathered this group of people that think he's man's gift or God's gift to mankind. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Does it sound foolish? It does, doesn't it? Then there's this long walk down the green mile A place of the skull, if there ever was one. Jesus is handcuffed. He's wearing the normal colors of orange. And as he walks down the green mile, he looks at each prisoner in the cells. This is where the filthiest of humanity lie waiting to die. And as the guards snap those handcuffs on, hands and feet, and he begins to shift through that green mile, one of the prisoners covered with tattoos, face to toes, is screaming with his arms through the bars, remember me, Jesus, remember me. And the guards allow Jesus to stop long enough for Jesus to look at the man in the eye and say, paradise is on its way. Does it sound crazy? Does it sound just off the wall? It sounds like a pipe dream. It's nuts, they say. That's foolishness to those who are perishing. And as the guards complete the journey, there's this unseen weight upon Jesus. It's like he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And they feel that as they lift him up out of the green mile and into the electric chair chamber. His friends and family are gathered there. He can see them through the plated glass. As he's sat down, he sits in the chair and his, his handcuffs come off. And as his handcuffs come off, his hands are placed on the arms of the chair and his legs go up in the stirrups. The guards begin to tighten down the straps and his hands begin to turn red and then purple from the straps. He can see his mother at the plated glass. She puts her hand up to the glass and the glass fogs because of the heat of the hand and the tears in the crowd. And his friend John is there consoling his mother. There are others who are gathered in the back that are watching. They want to make sure that Jesus actually does die. And as the guards have finished and the handcuffs have come off and the stirrups are tightened, 
He is given a crown. A bowl is placed on his head. Even a sponge he is given and is dipped in water and is placed on his head. The water runs and the electricity is flipped and he is there and he is being electrocuted. Uh, electricity coursing through lung and heart and through his entire body and fingertips. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but we all seem mad because it's foolish to believe in a God was crucified in the place of the skull between two thieves. Where in that moment is the wise man? Where in that moment is the philosopher? Where is the scholar in that moment? Because it's madness. Orange robe ripped, prisoner number 77. That, my friends, is the foolishness of the cross. And a crucified God, a Messiah. And it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and he died on a cross, because you cannot deny the fact that the cross stands as the greatest single symbol in human history. The cross divides human history. The cross embodies personal sacrifice. The cross commands our devotion. The cross invites us to life after death. The cross confirms Abraham's faith. The cross is the end of Joseph's nightmare. The cross is Moses' serpent statue lifted up in the wilderness. The cross continues the reign of David's throne. The cross confirms the wisdom of Solomon. The cross is Nehemiah's cornerstone. The cross is Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled. The cross is... uh, Job's answer, the cross gives a doubting Thomas certainty. The cross breaks Onesimus' chains. The cross gives Peter stone strength. The cross is seals Satan's fate. For us, the cross draws us inward. The cross swallows sin. The cross destroys death. The cross demonstrates his love. The cross says, do this in remembrance of me. The cross provides healing. The cross extends mercy. The cross is a gift of grace. The cross is what makes us holy. The cross is God extending the life. The cross is what Paul preached, and the cross is the Christian's destiny. Because, you see, the cross is no longer a symbol of defeat. It's a symbol of victory. Because Jesus Christ is a crucified God. The cross was not his end. It's just the beginning but the cross could not contain him. That is the foolishness of the cross. And it is something that you and I are called to, something that you and I are drawn to. And so I just want to, this morning, illustrate, talk about the cross. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? You are the crucified God. You're the Lord of life. You're the king of death. You're the sovereign of life after death. We put our hope, all of our hope, all of our fear in you, God. And what we do in these moments, in these days, in these months, in these years, they matter. They matter to you because we matter to you. You ultimately died a death that was foolish so that we might be raised to life. We thank you, God. We thank you for your sacrifice and the resurrection, the phoenix that will rise. I pray for us as we go out of here this morning, 
that we follow the path of the cross because the one who calls us to the cross is also the one who empowers us for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.